You're listening to The Local Lens, the podcast from the Powell County Health Department and Kentucky Rio, where we go inside our community's experience with the drug epidemic. Our show is coming to you from Stanton, Kentucky, a small town nestled at the foothills of Appalachia. Our goal with this show is to find and share very unique perspectives on the drug addiction world. And our guest this week was addicted to heroin and Oxycontins and was briefly homeless, but now holds a PhD from the University of Kentucky and lives and works in Lexington. So he joins the show this week to share some of what he's experienced and learned. At the end of the day, when you treat people with dignity and respect and you give them the things that they need, they get better. That's just been my simple experience across the board. And a big part of his job is to do research on addiction and recovery practices. And one of the things he's learned is... Most people recover naturally without any kind of intervention. And that really is an important point to understand. Then you ask the question, how is it that these people could have real severe addictions and recover without any formal intervention? It's because they have access to the things that they need. So this is part one of a two-part series with Dr. Ellswick, and we're going to start off by getting into his personal story and then go into what he's learned. This is The Local Lens. These are our people using our voices, telling our stories, because no one sees it like we do. My name is Alex Ellswick. I'm, um, I'm a person in long-term recovery from an addiction to Oxycontin and then to heroin, Um, which I imagine we'll get to talk a little bit about today. Um, So that's what kind of set me on my career path. I started as a marriage and family therapist because I really wanted to work with families who were impacted by addiction. And I got to do two years, about 400 clinical hours working with folks. And I I honestly just think I wasn't very good at it. I don't like, like I'm I'm very uncomfortable with emotion and that kind of thing. So it wasn't for me. Uh, but sometimes figuring out what you, you shouldn't be doing is as important as what you should. So I absolutely follow, agree with right? that. Yes. Oh, totally. So, yeah. yeah. So I got to do some research as a part of my master's degree. And it turns out I'm just a big nerd for the research. And I love it. And it's so important in order to help us understand more about addiction. So, um, so yeah, I went on and got a PhD and, um, and then co-founded a nonprofit called Voices of Hope. We're a recovery community organization, so we're not a treatment facility. We don't um, have beds. We don't have clinicians. All of our 30 staff are people in recovery, helping people in recovery. Um, so that's very cool. And, um, and then currently, I'm an assistant extension professor at the University of Kentucky for substance use prevention and recovery. So I write grants for prevention programs and do research on recovery and all these kinds of things. Yeah. And so you're, you got your hands on a lot of stuff yeah. going on right now, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So you said you had 30 staff people here. Mm-hmm. How that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So like we're, we're in Lexington, so it makes sense that there are more workers here than a place in Stanton would have. But are those part-time workers, full-time workers? What kind of blend is that? Those are 30 full-time employees. Wow. The majority of whom are recovery coaches. So they're sometimes called um, peer support specialists, mm-hmm. things like that. We call them recovery coaches, and they're people with lived experience in addiction mm-hmm. who are working um, to connect and provide resources to people in a lot of different positions. So we have a grant that's working with women who are justice involved. So our coaches will meet with them about a month prior to release to start okay. trying to get them the resources they need, okay. um, things like that. So yeah, it's, it's really an organization of people in recovery for people in recovery. So any listener of the local lens by now realizes how important and effective these very hands-on types of roles are, like these peer support and recovery coach jobs. There's just so much interaction between people who have made it through recovery and the people who are trying to get through recovery now. 
And that's the same model that Spark Ministries of Janelle Brewer uses. What you're doing here, it's, it's just a big army. And compared to people in Stanton, mm-hmm. what, what they know, it seems almost like a bigger version of what Spark Ministries is yep. doing in Stanton. So mm-hmm. are you aware of Spark? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Cool. What do you know about Spark? I'm yeah, just curious. I, Everybody I, loves Janelle. We, we did a couple of roundtables for um, the USDA about mm-hmm. opioid use in rural communities. And is her name Janelle? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was involved in some of those. I met her there, and um, she just does tremendous advocacy. So mm-hmm. we're familiar with the work they do. And, yeah, it's the same idea. It's really um, people who are using their lived experience to, to build connections with people in addiction and just trying to um, give them the things that they need to get better. Yeah. So, so let's start here then, too. Before we get into your whole story, mm-hmm. were peer supports, or you call them recovery, recovery coaches, coaches. Mm-hmm. were recovery coaches a big role in your recovery personally? Yeah, big time. So the, the role of peer support specialist or recovery coach uh, wasn't nearly as common 10 years ago as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't actually work with people whose title was peer support or recovery coach, but uh, I, I started my recovery in a 12-step program, and just through peers in that program, other mm-hmm. people in the program, it's 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 like vital. It's vital because you're walking around as a person who's having this experience with addiction that nobody in the world understands, and everybody in the world seems to judge and shame. And those mm-hmm. spaces are the only spaces where you get to go where everyone in the room just understands you. You don't have to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to defend yourself. You get to just be, and that's beautiful, and that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it seems to be a big thing. And yeah. like, yeah. And so you said it was about like 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been sober? So I've been in recovery since September 13th of 2013. You remember the date. Oh, yeah. Everyone remembers the date. That's incredible. They, they, people yeah. have to just be telling you, like, you got to write this down. Yeah. People are going to ask you someday. Well, you know, in 12-step programs, a big part of it is celebrating birthdays. So we call okay. them uh, sobriety birthdays, not belly button birthdays. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, for a lot of folks, um, you know, counting the days is important. It's become less important mm-hmm. to me over time. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so it's been... What almost uh, eight years, and um, it's it's been a wild ride. It's been it's been a wild experience to get to this point for sure. That's that's uh, that's a long time. Yeah. So, what were you doing? What did life look like before addiction set in? Then? Yeah. So, I'm born and raised from Lexington, Kentucky. Grew up in a really happy, healthy home. My dad's a doctor. My mom's an accountant. Um, I grew up really really privileged. Just had Grew up in the suburbs, went to private school, had everything I needed. Um, but there's a lot of addiction in my family, a lot of in my extended family. So I probably inherited genetic predisposition mm. and then a ton of anxiety disorders in my family. And I've been diagnosed with three different anxiety disorders and I'm just an anxious person. It's just yeah. how I am. Yeah. And uh, so I started, you know, looking for, for ways to cope with how I was feeling, I guess, at 14 or 15, found alcohol, marijuana, loved it. Um, but when I was 18 years old, I got prescribed um, oxycodone, oxycodone after uh, uh, having my wisdom teeth removed. Mm-hmm. And I took them as prescribed, but I got addicted to them. Mm-hmm. And that's really where my, uh, where my addiction started. Mm-hmm. So what year was that when you were prescribed that? would have been 2010. Okay. Yeah. So there weren't one of the big interests, like where I started paying any attention to it was when like prescriptions started getting involved in this whole thing. It seemed to almost awaken 
this uh, problem again for our for our area. Yeah. So do you see yourself like you mentioned it being as like partly genetic? Do you see it as almost like a generational thing that you were a part of like hmm. just a wide swath of people who were kind of gotten the same way? Or yeah, that's that's actually an interesting question because I don't know that I've ever heard anyone I guess speak of it that way but that is how I think of it because I look at just in any in any of my social circles so whether it was kids I played sports with or kids who grew up on my street or kids who you know I was at the church with or whatever it is um, it seemed like we were a generation of kids who got addicted to opioids and there are a whole lot of complicated reasons for that but I, yeah I think that's largely true is I think 20 years ago other generations who were going to be inclined to have drug problems were having problems with other substances because mm-hmm. they didn't have exposure to opioids as widespread as we did. So, mm-hmm. And this makes sense just by thinking of Woodstock. Uh, there was absolutely no shortage of drug usage there. It's just the drugs that this generation had were quite a bit different. So you're looking in, you were in high school then, right? Mm-hmm. Was, were you still like functional? And well, so, so that was, no, I'm in, when I'm in high school, I'm just kind of, um, experimenting. And then I went, when I was 18, I went to center college in Danville to play baseball. And, um, that's where I actually, I actually got arrested prior to getting a prescription for opioids. I got arrested on dr- drug trafficking charges. Okay. Um, I got a bunch of, uh, drug trafficking felonies and, and went to jail and it was real bad. And, it was just two months after um, getting convicted on some of those charges that uh, I went and had surgery and had wisdom teeth removed. So it's also mm-hmm. just the timing of it. I had just gotten kicked out of college. I'd gotten kicked off the baseball team. And then, boom, this prescription falls in my lap. Um, and I actually got dry sockets in the four wounds in my mouth. So they end up giving me a second prescription. So I ended up with like a 30-day supply of opioids for a really – like today, the same procedure, you're probably going to get 500 milligrams of ibuprofen. And a pat mm-hmm. on the head, you know, like yeah. tough it out. So, um, so yeah, it, it was bad. And so, no, I mean, I was, I was, uh, 18 years old. I was in college. Center college is a pretty, uh, pretty good school, pretty hard school, you know, and mm-hmm. I was making good grades and vying for a starting spot on the team. And in this perverse way, kind of in a shallow society like ours, it's really easy to look at that and go, well, this kid's doing fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, cause yeah. those were my metrics for how my life was going, but the whole time I'm using more and more and more. Then the arrest happened and it's just like the bottom fell out of my life in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. I lost my friend circle. I lost my, I lost baseball. I lost school. I lost it all at once. Um, and then got this prescription, you know, mm-hmm. and I, it's hard to describe what it's like becoming addicted, but, uh, you know, after just a few weeks of taking them, I, if I didn't take them, I felt sick. I felt, you know, irritable and just knew that if I could get more of the medication, I could be okay. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it, did it feel debilitating at all when you were like starting off in the addiction or was it truly just like we're avoiding feeling bad like yeah that's the that's the big bummer about addiction is it's like the ultimate bait and switch so Mm -hmm. the first um you know two thousand times you use something they're probably going to be overwhelmingly positive experiences which makes it really hard to believe that what you're doing is going to be harmful long term Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean the opioids for me took away pain, but also what they did was uh, um, give me like kind of a dissociative effect a little bit. Let me kind of like sit back and not worry about problems as much. As Mm -hmm. as long as I had pills, I didn't really worry as much. And I'm an anxious person. So obviously that's something I'm keen to address. Um, Yeah. And and 
but I kept up appearances. Like I think like most people do early in addiction, um, nobody knew. I mean, really nobody knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then at some point you decided that, well, for what reason was it that you ended up getting into recovery? So, I mean, I tried to quit 3000 times and I mean that sincerely. I tried to quit so many times and usually just would only make it a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Then I started going to treatment centers and I always did really well in treatment, um, which maybe sounds silly, but truly I would walk out of a 30 day treatment center ha having put in three, 30 really good days and mm -hmm. I'm really in a good place. But it was always, as soon as I transitioned back, mm -hmm. I would relapse immediately. And so I'm going through that, going through that. And then I ended up going homeless. Um, you know, I, I, I did a lot of bad things as a part of my addiction that, that are just things that um, I should be in prison for and whatever else. Um, and I, and I, I think because of the shame of some of those things, I went to my parents and told them I had a problem and, um, I ended up getting kicked out of, uh, the house where I was staying with the, the girl I was dating and went homeless. And so I ended up spending time homeless in um, in Nashville, Tennessee and Lexington, Kentucky, and then in Cincinnati and Dayton and spent the very end of my addiction, sleeping under a bridge in Dayton, holding the cardboard sign, um, and shooting dope and um and you know i called home for help and you know my parents weren't at that point really weren't willing to do anything mm -hmm. um so i ended up walking out from under the bridge into a salvation army which is a homeless shelter in dayton and mm -hmm. they, they have a treatment component but um kind of only nominally like they they don't i don't mm -hmm. know that what what they're doing you would actually call treatment because really what they do is they give you a, a bed to lay your head at night and three warm meals mm -hmm. and you know some support i mean definitely it's compassionate care but mm -hmm. um and i ended up spending six months at this shelter because i had nowhere else to go and mm -hmm. it was the worst like the first month i spent there is the worst month of my, my whole life by by far mm -hmm. um but things started to change for me and i woke up three months in feeling kind of human and then six months in and I was on my way, you know, so, um, calling back to the days where you were homeless, sleeping under the bridge with a cardboard sign, what to help other people be more sympathetic to that? What is a meaningful way that yeah. somebody could have actually helped you then? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, when you're driving through, so I, I work at, on campus when I'm driving through campus, uh, invariably there are folks, uh, on the corner holding a cardboard sign, mm -hmm. right? Homeless, hungry, whatever it is. And before my addiction, I didn't think a lot about them. I think mm -hmm. before my addiction, I, I, like most people do, felt uncomfortable, maybe felt a little guilty, mm -hmm. probably tried to avert my eyes, whatever. One of the things I learned through my addiction is, and maybe this is, is obvious, but those, those folks weren't born in that place and in that mm -hmm. condition. They weren't born with a cardboard sign in their hand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's a... That's, that's a person who's somebody's son or somebody's daughter, and they have a whole story. Mm -hmm. And there are things that they like, you know? Just because they're homeless doesn't mean there aren't things that they like and things that mm -hmm. they hate. And they're like, they're a full, complicated human being. And, um, and I think what people need the most across the board, no matter what you suffer from, is connection. Okay. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs a place where they're just accepted, where they, where they just get to be who they are. And so often because of the way that we shame drug use, um, people who use drugs are not able to be who they are in most spaces. Mm -hmm. To some extent, you're having to hide it. Um, so the most meaningful thing you can do is connect with somebody. 
truly, it's it, people ask me all the time, should I give people money or not? And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's, really, it's not the point. I mean, really, um, it's not the point. What would be much more impactful is if you'd like pull your car over, go get some food and just sit down and have a bite with them. Just yeah. for a minute, just to say like, I recognize that you're a person, that you're not mm-hmm. just a person out here taking, you're a person who needs, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's really hard to humanize it. And um and people said horrible things to me when I was standing on the side of the road. You wouldn't believe. I mean, really, it's amazing the things that people would say. Um, and I, I, in some ways, consider myself really genuinely fortunate to have had that experience because um, because I can't help but look at a person holding a sign and say, like, who's your mom? You know, who's yeah. your mom? Who's what? What's your job? What did you do? What do you love? I don't know. But that's still kind of a simplified version of how I got to where I got to. I got to where I got to because of... Just a lot of help from a lot yeah. of people. You know? Yeah, yeah. And you, you said, you mentioned earlier that it, it was truly a lot of people. Like before we started recording, you told me like a lot of people helped you on your whole yes. route, like through school. Yes. So was your recovery path kind of intertwined with being back in school or uh, were they separate? Or I would like? say my recovery is really intertwined with my... Um, my privilege, however you choose to see that with my wealth or access to resources or whatever, because, uh, you know, so a lot of times after, like I'll, I'll share my story somewhere and people approach me afterwards and they always say really nice things. And they're like, Alex, we're proud of you because you're strong and you're brave and resilient. And those are nice things to say, but that's not true. It's not, it's not true. And the reason it's not true is because if you believe that people recover because they're strong or resilient or because they work hard enough, then it means you believe that the people who are still suffering in addiction aren't strong or they're not resilient mm-hmm. or that, you know, they don't love yeah. their families enough or whatever. It's just not true. Really across the board, the difference we see between people who still struggle in their addiction and people who are recovering is access to resources mm-hmm. is getting the things that you need. Mm-hmm. So for me, my story has always been about um, the fact that I'm a person who got what he needed. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate the kind words and I know people mean well, but I don't deserve that praise. It's not the work that I put in. I haven't put mm-hmm. in any more work than my best friend who's down at the Fay County Detention Center right now on cocaine mm-hmm. charges. You know, we're the same in terms of the effort, in terms of our desire to be well, in terms of our desire to be productive citizens. The difference is I had all this stuff that I needed and he didn't. And so mm-hmm. really when we started Voices of Hope, we started with that idea in mind is we recognized I had this really privileged experience that allowed me to have success. And most people don't get to have that. So how can we replicate that experience for everybody in, in our community? Mm-hmm. Looking back at your own recovery too, you said you tried like a thousand different times yep. to get through it. Do you think that it was that you were trying the wrong things or do you think that each step was a necessary, like, mm-hmm. like using a spoon to scrape through the, the concrete cell wall. Mm, like great analogy. I love that. It makes me think Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was that. It is that. And it is important that people in recovery are able to see it that way. Because we're so obsessed with abstinence, I could keep going back to this. Mm-hmm. Anytime somebody shows up with a positive drug test, we think that's pathological. We think that their drug use was a mm-hmm. part of their disease, right? This mm-hmm. is evidence that your disease is flaring up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and then we'll kick them out of treatment or we'll, we won't give them access to the things they need or whatever. I agree definitely that um, relapse is often, not always, but often a part of recovery. 
Mm-hmm. And that recovery, remember I said the definition is a process of change. Mm-hmm. And that it's important to even hone in on that phrase. It's a process. It is not linear. It's, mm-hmm. it's not been linear for anyone I've ever met. So for a lot of people, you're learning things as you go through. And, um, you know, like one of the first things I learned is um, about my anxiety is that my anxiety and my addiction were more closely related than I ever realized because the first time I got out of treatment, my anxiety, and I was stone cold sober, my anxiety was was off the wall, was really bad. And I relapsed as a part of that experience, but I also don't think that that was a useless experience. I What it taught me there was managing my anxiety is gonna be a really important part of what my recovery looks like. Okay. And for a lot of other people, that's probably not the case. They don't have that struggle. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you learn along the way and, and, and I think it's important that providers and social service organizations and nonprofits and whoever it is, treatment centers come to see, uh, recovery as a process and stop dinging people or sanctioning people, um, or belittling people when they show up with a positive drug test mm-hmm. that, that may be a, a part of their process, but let's keep them in the process. Let's not kick them out of the process just because they're struggling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because basically what we do is. You know, if somebody comes to treatment, they're coming saying, I've got this problem. I can't stop taking drugs, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they're going to treatment. And oftentimes what treatment centers will do, uh, if you're, let's say while you're at that treatment center, you continue to have that problem and you Mm -hmm. use drugs. A lot of times treatment centers will kick you out Mm -hmm. and you're sitting here going, no, wait, wait a second. I came to you because I told you I can't stop taking these things. So why are you surprised when I couldn't stop taking them? That is the nature of the problem that you said you were going to treat. Instead of treating it, you kicked me out. So it's absurd. It really is absurd on the face of it. Um, And it comes from the the obsession with abstinence. I wish all of us would get as obsessed with health and wellness, Mm -hmm. with um, independence, with autonomy, with those things as we were with abstinence. Because those are just more valuable goals in my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. What is so like now that you're in research, now that you're in that side of it, what has been the most surprising thing that you've researched? I love that. I love that question because that's something I want to talk about. The most surprising by far. This one, and this is like, this is a big one because if you really understand and believe this, I think it requires a paradigm shift in the whole way you look at addiction. So, I started my recovery in a 12-step program, which is an abstinence-based program. Mm. And that meant that everybody I knew in recovery in my circle was in a 12-step abstinence-based program. Mm. So everything I saw around me was abstinence. And so the only examples of success in recovery I had were people who were completely abstinent. So I believed that was the answer. And so I, early in recovery, was like an abstinence warrior. And I wanted to go out and get everybody abstinence on this crusade. What the research gave me was the ability to step outside of my little circle Mm -hmm. and see trends across the board. And what I found that really blew my mind is, first of all, most people, there are like 25 million people in recovery in the United States today. The majority of those 25 million people in recovery had no formal help whatsoever, which means they didn't go to a treatment center, inpatient or outpatient. Mm -hmm. They didn't see a therapist and they didn't go to a 12 step, any kind of mutual aid meeting generally when people hear that, it's like, that doesn't even add up. The first time I read it, I was like, there's no way that's true. Mm Because everybody I knew who had a real serious addiction had to go to treatment, had to go, right? What turns out, it's absolutely true. It's called natural recovery. Most people recover naturally without any kind of intervention. And that really is an important point to understand. So it's like Mm -hmm. half of people with substance use disorders and 75% of people with alcohol use disorders Mm -hmm. recover without formal help. 
Then you ask the question, how is it that these people could have real severe addictions and recover without any formal intervention? It's because they have access to the things that they need. It's because, right, it comes back around, privilege. So it's sort of like they're being organically treated in a sense, if you want to think about it that way, right? Mm -hmm. So they have the job opportunity. They have the the good family life. They have the whatever. Um, That was mind-blowing to me because it – I used to think that the goal was always first to get someone into a treatment center. Mm -hmm. And then while they're in treatment, we're going to figure out what resources they need. That was Mm -hmm. always my approach. And I think it's most people's approach. And now I've learned over time, you really don't need to go to treatment. Some people do. Mm -hmm. I mean, make no mistake. There are people who have severe substance use disorders, who have, you know, um, severe mental illness or experience chronic homelessness or for any number of reasons – inpatient treatment might be exactly what's right for them. And actually, I think I was one of those people. I really do think I needed a period of crisis intervention, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not a solution. And we call that treatment, but we're not doing a whole lot of meaningful things to treat people in that time. So then you got to think about what comes next, what's Mm -hmm. long-term. So for me, that was the most surprising thing is learning about natural recovery and learning about the fact that we can build resources for people, community-based resources. We call them recovery capital. Okay. Build recovery capital for people without forcing them to go to treatment against their will, without incarcerating people. I mean, as it stands now, you really do oftentimes either have to go to treatment or become incarcerated to access lots of resources. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty messed up that you should have to catch a charge to get the (laughs) things you need when instead we could just provide the things they need first before they catch a charge. You know, (laughs) how about that? So now that we've met the person that Dr. Ellswick is, we've seen where he's coming from. Now we're ready to move forward and hear about what his approaches to recovery are, but that's going to be the next episode. So until then, be thinking about this guy that has been driven into homelessness because of his addiction. He spent years trying to recover, spent years trying to figure out what would work for him, and he found it. And now he's helping other people find it. So come back for the next episode. We're going to dig in deep and talk about some of these topics. The definition of recovery, if you actually look at the definition, SAMHSA's working definition right now is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. It's the full definition. No mention of drugs, no mention Mm -hmm. of abstinence, because that's not the goal, right? Mm -hmm. We're not about reducing drug use. We're about reducing the harm of drug use. We really don't support recovery meaningfully. What we mostly Mm -hmm. tend to support is treatment. So treatment centers get tons of funding. It used to be a problem 10 years ago trying to find a bed for someone. When Mm -hmm. you know, If you have someone right there with you, they're willing to go to treatment. It was hard to find a place like that. Today, it's no problem. Our recovery coaches do it on a daily basis, we can get you in right away. The problem isn't the availability of treatment. The problem is the acceptability. At the end of the day, a lot of my my personal mission is trying to use my experience to show people when we meet people's needs, they get better. So we have to, we, we you know, addiction's complicated, but we don't ha- have to act like um, we have to find some elaborate solution. At the end of the day, when you treat people with dignity and respect and you give them the things that they need, they get better. That's just been my simple experience across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we get too uh, obsessed with whether or not they can pass a drug test or or whatever, we're missing the the boat a little bit. So yeah, we've got a lot in store for you guys here. So I do hope you come back and listen to that episode. This was definitely one of the coolest interviews that I've done for the show so far. It taught me so much about recovery and how to approach recovery and what our goals should be. Our goals should be to help people live a full life. That's it. That's what our goal should be. 
Well, anyways, I hope you come back and listen to the next one. Big thanks to Dr. Ellswick for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate you. Also, I'd like to thank WSKV for broadcasting the show for us. And also a big thanks to the Powell County Health Department and Kentucky Rio. Without you guys, the show wouldn't have ever started. So this has been The Local Lens. I'm your host, Nate Brooks. These are our people using our voices, telling our stories, because no one sees it like we do.